Hello, everyone. Welcome to the seventh episode of Weaving Myths Season 2. Weaving Myths is a podcast focused on tabletop role-playing games, and specifically playing them through the play-by-post format. I'm your host, Nathan, and joining me today is Eric. Good evening. We are both moderators on Mythweavers, a play-by-post gaming website, and we're here to help bring your game to the next level. If you're not familiar with Mythweavers, you can find it at myth-weavers.com. As always, we are joined by the impeccable text chat which members of Mythweavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. If you too would like to be part of the text chat, feel free to join us on the Mythweavers Discord server every other Saturday at 8pm Eastern Time. This week we're going to be continuing our discussion of designing encounters, and if we have time, we're going to be talking about designing dungeons. After that, we'll have the free-for-all and game of the week. So, last week we talked about designing challenges, which is more like traps and skill challenges. This week we're going to focus on combat and stringing several combats and challenges together into a dungeon. So let's get started with designing encounters. Well, hey, I mean, obviously you need to have adversaries that are going up against your players, and you need to select ones that make sense for the situation that you're in. When I design my combat encounters, I tend to design them with a thought towards the larger scope. I don't just roll randomly on a monster-generating table until I get something that I like and and, uh, sprinkle a few of those on the map and uh, call it an encounter. It really needs to be something that it adds to the story that we're trying to tell here. So definitely pick an enemy that fits the situation, whether that's, hey, we're on an underwater adventure, and so we need to have some sort of big dangerous fish, maybe with uh, lasers on their heads or something, um, or uh, say we're on a uh, Arctic adventure, and uh, perhaps there's a Yeti or Snow Wolf or, or uh, even a White Dragon as a more iconic type of uh, encounter. And I'll mention that this may seem pretty straightforward, but actually picking enemies to fit the situation is not as easy as you might think. Um, I've been slowly writing a campaign for my pawn setting, and the starting like couple sections of the campaign are focused around the players defeating a cult. And even though it obviously makes sense for them to be fighting cultists, You don't want them fighting only cultists. And I've actually found it pretty difficult to try and spice it up within that. But that's what bestiaries are for. I mean, and it can be any system. There's going to be a book of enemies that you can pull from. So it's not just been cultists. It's been demons. and There's been fiends and like variety in there, even though they are primarily focusing on a cult. One as we'll get to later when we talk about designing dungeons or, or broader campaigns in general, it often pays to have multiple threads going on so that you can bring different vectors in, different sorts of opponents, because it doesn't have to relate to that cultist theme. It could relate to this other thing that's going on with uh, kobolds trying to infiltrate through the sewers to steal foodstuffs from the granary. Yeah, and I'll throw out there that one campaign in particular that I've played recently sticks out in my mind a little bit, but the Princes of the Apocalypse campaign for 5th edition did a really good job with this. They would have... So you would be focusing on, for example, the Water Cult, but they would throw in some monsters related to the Earth Cult to remind the players that, hey, yeah, you're focused on this one thing, but there's other things going on too. 
Now, when you're talking about what opponents to select, I, mean, I threw out a bunch of different options for the Arctic of various difficulty levels. You got to be careful to pick ones that are appropriate for the challenge that you want to give to the players. Part of this is just straight up balancing it against what their capabilities are. But another part of it is considering their mentality and how they spend their resources. It pays to know your group here because if you have a group that decides that there is no combat encounter that they will ever run or flee from and you're not interested in a TPK, you have to set your challenge bar to just strong enough to really challenge them and don't go in with that overwhelming encounter where you're really expecting that they would need to flee because they won't. That seems to be a trademark of most adventuring parties that they won't back down unless they absolutely have to. And usually by the time they figured that out, it's too late to back down. Yep. And again, most systems, if they have a bestiary, they have a rule book or a section of a rule book dedicated to making things just difficult enough. Um, D&D 5th edition actually has such detailed rules that people have created online calculators that let you plug in monsters and it will tell you how difficult that challenge is. So, however, we'll throw out this caveat. With systems like Shadowrun, where it's more about how smart the players play rather than how powerful they are, it can be difficult to balance things because you can load out your enemies with this armor, this weapon, and these skills, be it magic or technology or whatever, and you might think it's a fair fight, but when it comes to actually putting it into practice, it can be extremely easy or extremely difficult, and that's why it's so important to know your party well. Um, generally, before I do really intricate combat design, I throw a couple of like throwaway combats at my players just to see what power level they're at, so I can adjust future combats to be on their level. I find that's a good practice in any case, not just because it helps me as a GM figure out what it is the players can do, but it also helps the players hone their tactics as well, because particularly in a play-by-post format where you're getting applicants from across the world, potentially, who may have not played with each other before, they need some time to figure out how that interplay goes, which would normally happen very readily when they're sitting across the table from each other. Yeah, it's much harder to metagame on play-by-post than it is at a table, where at a table, obviously, you can just say, hey, should I move here? Can I? Should I attack this? Should I cast this spell? Instead, people have to kind of act on their own and trust their allies to do smart movement and smart attacks and smart spells. So it can be, because of how slow the medium is, it can be more difficult to ask advice, and combat on play-by-post is already slow enough, that if you start throwing meta gaming into it, things can go very slowly when it comes to combat in general. Okay, so we hit up on how to pick encounters and how to mix things up, but how do you really make it an exciting encounter? For me, that's one where all the players are able to contribute in some way, shape, or form. It can be a challenge to do where the system allows for easy buttons, you know, a, a simple, a single spell maybe changes the entire adventure, but make sure that everybody has something positive to contribute in their tool set. It requires you as the GM to really know what's on their sheet and you as the GM to kind of pay attention to the tactics that they prefer to use so that they at least have an option for contributing. And I know we actually keep harping on this, but this actually goes all the way back to the selection process. 
when you are picking players for your game, it can be very beneficial to keep in the back of your mind, how will this character interact in a combat situation? Will they have a spell that will meet any challenge, or will they soak up all the damage that enemies are dealing? And party balance, well, I don't put a lot of faith in party balance because I like the story more than I like making sure the combat encounters are balanced. I can tweak combat encounters later to fit the party, regardless of what the composition is. But when you're picking players, you do want to think about it at least a little bit to say, okay, if I do throw a combat at a party consisting of these players and characters, how might it go down and how can I tweak it to make sure that everyone has a uh, a spotlight moment, basically? Absolutely. And there are there are plenty of ways to uh, to take advantage of that. Frequently, the, the most common one that I hear come up is the, the dichotomy between so-called melee fighters and casters. Uh, I play a lot of D&D 3.5, and so I'm very familiar with the notable imbalances between those two. But you can take advantage of the scenario itself, the setting, the uh, lay of the land, the number of doors or windows or other access points to the, to the combat space. To make it so that, while well, yes, the wizard can cast a spell to take out part of the encounter, that a single spell is not going to go take out the entire encounter. And I think that actually leads very nicely into another point that we were going to talk about, is that not every combat has to be balanced. Like, you don't have to throw constantly throw battles at your players that are 100% equal to them. You can crank up the difficulty to, okay, so yeah, the wizard uses that one spell, but after that spell, the combat is still there. Or if you decide to make it easier for whatever reason, maybe that's your opportunity to give the wizard his spotlight moment and say, I have just the spell for this, and he takes out the whole combat. Um, so not every combat has to be perfectly balanced, but nope, lost my train of thought. No, I think you're absolutely right. Um, where I would go with this is to analogize and compare and contrast with the tabletop experience. Frequently, if you're going into a major combat in tabletop, it can take half or more of your entire session time. So you want to make sure that if you've got a major combat like that planned, that it's more balanced and more diverse so that everybody has a chance to shine and then the I win buttons aren't as readily available to any member of the party. We had a, a combat encounter that I've mentioned before where the the uh, enemy du jour was a uh, Larnian cryohydra, but the wizard in the party was an evoker fire specialist, and she just dropped a delayed blast fireball, and we all walked away from what was supposed to be the, the big climactic moment of the session. And the GM just closed his book and said, oh, so uh, how about the capitals? And we didn't really have anything else to do. So on a play-by-post it gives the GM more options to pivot because you're not tied down to that one session. So, hey, this encounter didn't go quite like I expected. It's time to move on. As long as you've planned properly for what moving on looks like for not only the success, but also the success with caveats or the failure, but some bright spots out of it, or even the abject failure and the worst possible outcome. As long as you know where the game is going for each one of those opportunities, then it really doesn't matter whether the combat is long or short, memorable or forgettable. And you also brought up a point that I'd like to address, is that 
sometimes when you're designing an encounter, it can be easy to forget what is on your character's character sheet. Just because... So, say you're designing this cryohydra encounter, and you forget that your one of your players is a fire evoker wizard. It can be easy to get them mixed up or forget that little piece of knowledge. So, players, just like in challenges, like we talked about last week, they're going to come up with a solution that you haven't thought of. So, being prepared for the players to do something unexpected, like... Uh, I'm actually going to go to Lord of the Rings for an example. And um, in the scene where Aragorn tosses Gimli across the gap to the bridge so they can hold the bridge, something like that can happen just as easily with combat encounters as it can with climbing up a cliff face. Oh, absolutely. Um, The reason why we knew to be prepared for that cryohydra in our particular case is because when we had met the creature previously, the party rogue had gone while it was sleeping and tied bells on each one of its tails. So um, when we heard the tinkle of bells, we knew the Hydra was back, and uh, it was just a matter of uh, setting up the kill shot rather than uh, being encountered by it. You know, that's actually a really good way to marry a skill challenge with a combat encounter. So you don't fight the creature immediately. Instead, you give the opportunity for the rogue to tie bells to the creature. And that, I think, speaks very highly of your DM, that they had the foresight to set up the encounter, let the players do something to give them an advantage before taking on the creature. Right then. So, ordinary encounters, check. But sometimes you're going to have to go up against the boss. And that's an entirely different can of worms when you're trying to develop a boss encounter because you really want that to be the memorable one. How do you make it unique? I think you have to start with the boss himself when it comes to designing a unique encounter around the boss. A So when it's a boss fight, they're going to set themselves up in a position that is most advantageous to themselves. They don't want to be in a fight where the odds are not stacked in their favor. So um, I keep going back to D&D 5th edition, but it just does it so darn well. And they give boss monsters the ability to manipulate dungeons to either soften up the party or make it more difficult for the party to get to them in the first place. So, and that ultimately goes back to the boss in question. So you have to figure out if it's going to be a memorable fight, you have to make it a memorable creature or character that has their own motivations, their own set of skills, their own set of abilities that perhaps the party doesn't have access to that they can use to stack things in their favor. That's an excellent point. Even if the boss is something as simply straightforward as, say, an iconic red dragon that you're just going to go take out, don't just make it the straight out-of-the-box red dragon that you would find just by opening up the monster manual to the page that says dragon, comma red. Give it a twist. Give it two twists. Give it some minions that work for it. Give it something that makes the situation more unique and more challenging than just walking into the lair of a red dragon expecting that you're going to get fire breathed at you and uh, you are going to have to counter with ice. Um, Often this can be set up by creating a string of events, encounters leading up to the big challenge where the players have the opportunity to, to learn about their ultimate adversary, both from a story perspective and to prepare for it. 
You know, that sounds an awful like an awful lot like something we're going to talk about. Uh, maybe what's what's it called? A a dungeon? <laughs> wow, it's like we planned it. Man, we are so good. <laughs> but no, you're absolutely right. If even if it is something as quote unquote simple as a red dragon, then even that alone should have something to make it unique. It should have a name, it should have um, minions and lieutenants and people that carry out its will, because even though it's a dragon, it can still only be in one place at one time. And if it sets itself up in, say, an abandoned dwarven city, then it's going to have mo- other monsters under it that are going to work for it and complete tasks that it doesn't have the time for or doesn't have any interest in accomplishing. And that can be any number of things. It could be setting up traps. It could be bringing in more gold. It could be raiding the countryside. And leading up to a boss encounter, you can have all of these things happening that could constitute an entire campaign. So taking down a dragon, in theory, is simple. But you could actually build an entire story around this dragon that leads the party to it to make it into this unique boss that finally, when the players get to it, it is a memorable and challenging fight that they've had to work for. If only someone named J.R.R. Tolkien had laid a roadmap for exactly how to do that. Oh, wait, he did. (laughs) I will stress that The Hobbit is about 18, 20 chapters long. Smaug is only in three of them, but they are very memorable three chapters. And the reason is because the trail to smog was laid out starting from chapter one or two where the whole concept of this countryside devouring beast that's displaced the dwarves from their rightful ancestral home that seed is planted early on and it's allowed to grow through time so exactly what we were talking about with creating encounters and events along the storyline that drive you towards the epic encounter that's exactly what you have to plan in as the DM is to, to make it memorable by preparing your players for it to be memorable. That is 100% accurate. Uh, I was going to say something else, but I don't know what. Perhaps you were going to say that that's where we should start into how to design a dungeon to be memorable in the same way that a boss encounter is memorable. That's a great segue. We'll use that. <laughs> so dungeons are a lot like a boss except they are a place instead of a character. Although, in my personal opinion, I think you should go about designing a dungeon very similarly to a boss, especially in fantasy worlds, where the history of a place can be anything you want it to be, so it can be as rich and varied as any character. Obviously, you have to start with a concept for the dungeon, so... You have to determine, is it a cave? Is it an abandoned dwarven city? Is it, um, I'm trying to think, is it a tomb where a lich resides? Like, you have to come up with a concept for it first. Um, and Eric, I'll let you talk about this, but there's a very good book out there called Situations that kind of gives you an idea of how to start with a dungeon. Yes, and I've just dropped the link on RPG for that product. Uh, it's available, pay as you what you want. So uh, if you feel that it's worthless, you can obviously pay $0, but the suggested price is $2. And uh, for my mind, it's worth it. There are six articles in situations, but the one that I want to focus on here 
is the article called Nine Rooms. And it is what it sounds like. It's the whole quintessential concept of a dungeon, a place with places within it where you have to explore, where you're going to be challenged in a variety of ways. And what the author does is really lay out a thought process for how to think about the scenario broadly. And then more specifically, as you go into each of these places, how they work together, both from a storyline and how to challenge the players together so that when they get to the end of it, they feel like the entire process has been a journey worth taking. Now, I haven't personally read it yet, but I intend to. Um, it was kind of unfair of me to give you that link with uh, 30 minutes to go. No, it's fine. Um, I just, I am curious, though. It sounds like the nine rooms idea, is that potentially applicable to more than just dungeons? Like, could you generalize the idea and do it for an entire campaign, for example? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and the way I would think about that is exactly an abstraction that each one of those rooms is a dungeon in and of itself and the nine of them interconnect in a way that build one upon the other not necessarily in a linear fashion but in a way that facilitates the character's growth towards the ultimate dungeon there at the end of the nine okay so that answers my question very well thank you (laughs) so once you've picked out a concept for your dungeon you should really determine the feel of the dungeon so what I mean by feel is not necessarily, is it scary? Is it exciting? I more mean, how are the players going to progress through it? Is it going to be an intense experience? Is it going to be a more casual, oh yeah, this is, we're heroes, we're here to uh, beat up the monsters? Or is it more like a story that evolves over time? And those three concepts, I think, uh, when I was doing research for this particular topic, I found three really good examples that I really liked. And the first example is the aliens feel, which is derived from the alien movies. And dungeons along those lines are intense and dark and full of doom and gloom, and they really test your player's resources. Um, They are designed to be very resource intensive and or resource scarce in that the players have very limited resources to complete tasks within the dungeon. In particular, with this type of dungeon, often there is no way out or a very difficult way out, and getting out is potentially the ultimate objective in the in you know, the players' minds. Is just escape may be the only motivation, and you just got to find some way to get there. Yep, and to give a more D, more, a more concrete example, the beginning of the D&D 5th edi- edition adventure, um, crap, what's it called? Out of the Abyss, is the players are captured by drow and are prisoners under them. And by the end of escaping from the drow at the very beginning, they're supposed to feel like they've had a major accomplishment. Like, they're scraping by with things they can find while they're working, or they're required to work together, in which case somebody might die. So it, that's kind of the feel we're going for with that. So the next example is the Temple of Doom, which if you've ever watched Indiana Jones, you know the Temple of Doom. And this is more of that pulp adventure where the dungeons are pretty plot light. There's not much story, um, but there's a f- heavy focus on a few very exciting set pieces. Um, so... Like the, the um, crushing go- traps. Yeah, exactly. Where the girl has to reach in to find the lever and there's, 
millions of insects crawling over her and yeah, excitement. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's not necessarily meant to be a resource intense thing, but it's more meant to be exciting, actiony. There's lots of explosions and like things are happening all at, all at once. Um, so that's kind of the feel we're going for with the Temple of Doom style dungeon. Which is not to say that there won't be casualties. Even in a, a pulp type adventure, the sidekicks often bite it to just prove how badass the heroes were in actually making it through. And the last example is Snowpiercer. And I'll admit I'm not 100% sure what Snowpiercer is referencing, um, but these dungeons are heavily focused on lore, narrative, and story. So most frequently, these dungeons have... As they, as the players progress through them, there's a story unveiled as to, for example, why the Dwarven City is abandoned, or things of that nature. So, Snowpiercer, it's a movie, apparently, according to Mick the Rogue. It's on Netflix, and this movie looks really good. I mean, to, to put it in a potentially more familiar vein, that's exactly what Tolkien did with Khazad Doom, with the uh, party of the Fellowship of the Ring, exploring the Mines of Moria, which have been long since abandoned, and finding out as they go what the circumstances were, how dire it was. There weren't necessarily a lot of resources available, so in some ways this ended up a little bit more like the alien example that we used earlier. But the idea was to explore the dwarven culture and how it had ended up being the way it was, in as much as it was a way of getting through from one side of the mountain range to the other. Yep, that's a really good way to describe it. So the next point we were going to make, I think, is that none of these particular motifs have to be followed exactly. All of them can be mixed and mingled very easily. Um, the the intro to the Casa Doom was much more in the exploration and uh, lore and information. And then they accidentally notified the occupying goblins that, hey, we're here. Um, and then it very quickly became the alien scenario of just trying to escape the ravening hordes. And you know, even that, even though it shifted a bit more towards aliens, there's still a lot of Temple of Doom in there as well. I mean, you've got the collapsing stairway and then the bridge. You collapsing. shall not pass. Yeah, exactly. So there's still a lot of those things going on. So every dungeon, I think, should have not just one of these. It should be a mix and match of all of them. Or even you can take a, take it a step further, which I think is fits the Tolkien example very closely. Um, that you can have different areas of the dungeon fit different tropes. So the initial opening of the door exploration is obviously uh, more more the it's more the Snowpiercer trope, and then it shifts to the Temple of Doom when they're fighting in that room with the sarcophagus, and then it shifts to I'm sorry, I, I think I said Temple of Doom for that room. It's definitely the aliens part for that room, because it's a desperate fight for survival in this very small space. And then it shifts to Temple of Doom, where they're running through the hallways, there's things collapsing and exploding, and there's fire, and so it, it's all together there. Yep. So, to get to this point, you're going to have to do a fair amount of work in setup. You're going to have to design a, a history and a backstory for the dungeon, just like you would have designed for a boss, just like we were talking about earlier. So you have to consider, where did it come from? Why was it there to begin with? Why is it the way it is now compared to the way it was originally put there? 
because they can often have changed hands several times, either on purpose or uh, by accident. And what's the level of familiarity that the setting, the people of the setting have with this particular dungeon? Is it, is it a well-known place that is frequented by young adventurers looking for a little bit of a challenge? Or is it something where there's only hints and whispers of it that exist anywhere in the world and finding it can be as much as part of the adventure as actually exploring it? To continue our Lord of the Rings example, the the Mines of Moria, like originally it was built as a dwarven city and was incredibly prosperous. They dug too deep, they found the Balrog, they found the goblins, and it evolved into this empty, hollowed out place. But the Mines of Moria were extremely well known and people knew where they were. But from I from my understanding of the character reactions once they arrive at Moria, that event was relatively recent. So this type of change can happen very rapidly. It can happen as the players are going to the dungeon. So maybe people think it's one way, but they show up and it's completely different. And this gets into the whole concept of attentive play. If you're laying clues about the scenario out there in plain sight for the players to stumble across, find use their advantage layer later, then that can be rewarding in and of itself just to to help make the setting and the scenario a little bit more rich in their minds. It can also help them when it comes to facing particular challenges that are within the dungeon. Um, if you knew that there was a Balrog waiting for you at the bottom, you'd probably prepare differently than if a Balrog just happens to emerge from the... Uh, fiery depths as you're you're trying to tiptoe your way through the abandoned hallways. And speaking of challenges, you should definitely in a dungeon feature a wide variety and mix of challenges. It shouldn't just be all traps or all monsters. Um, I think a, a common trap that people fall into when they're designing a dungeon is they need a monster in every room. And that's not necessarily the case. There are many dungeons out there that feature several or even the majority of the rooms are completely empty. Uh, they're not empty of, like, features, like they have furniture and um, features on the walls, or there's different lighting, but they're basically empty of monsters. So when you're designing a dungeon, you need to mix it up. You need to have maybe one room has a dungeon, the next room, or, I'm sorry, one room has a monster encounter, the next room doesn't have anything, the next room has a trap. So you have to mix and match just so it doesn't end up being the same thing over and over and over. Um, and then maybe there's a puzzle to get into the boss room, something along those lines. Yeah, Basil mentioned, say Basil, I love saying Basil. Basil mentioned earlier on that uh, we were going to talk about ecology, and here's where my plug is going to be for ecology. There's no way that that many monsters could coexist in that small of a space. If they are neighboring each other, someone's going to eat someone else. It's just going to happen. There has to be enough space for them to touch each other's territory, but not compete for territory. If they're competing for territory, someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. It's not a stable situation. Then again, maybe you're going for an unstable situation. Uh, I've had uh, built dungeon encounters around. This was a, uh, a known orc haven, but local kobold tribes got displaced and are trying to move in and take some of the space away. And so... While the adventurers are showing up, there are pitched battles going on here and there in the dungeon between two other parties who have no care for the adventurers whatsoever until they get in the way. And that leads really well into the next point that 
if you're going to design a dungeon in such a way that there's competing factions or something along those lines inside the dungeon, it has to make sense. You know, you can't... Well, maybe you can, but I'm sure somebody can come up with an example. But maybe you can't have unicorns trying to invade a dragon's den. And I'm sure somebody's going to tell me there's an example of that somewhere now. But it has to make sense logically. It says It has to say, okay, are these two groups something that would reasonably fight against one another? Or is this a place that would reasonably exist? Um, would a dragon inhabit a ancient dwarven city? Well, yeah, obviously, they've got gold, and it's a cave, and there's lots of room for them to move around. It, so it, it has to make sense in the grand scheme of things. It has to fit into the setting, it has to fit into where it's located, it has to fit in why the monsters inside it are in this dungeon in the first place. Right. You can only have so many world's largest dungeons where a wizard teleported in whatever he randomly felt like before it starts to wear on people. It works a whole lot better if they have an idea as to the progression. If you've got a dungeon that at the bottom is inhabited by drow, the top is going to have things that are related to the drow because otherwise the drow are probably going to clear them out because they're a pest or they're in the way. You're not going to end up with elves, surface elves, inhabiting right around the entrance to the dwarfs' underlayer, drows' underlayer. (laughs) And, you know, in some cases, they don't even have to be conflicting factions. They can be working together. So I know in a lot of cases, dragons will take underling. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, they're this big, powerful dragon. They're going to take people and force them to work together or enslave them and suddenly you have this wide diversity inside the dungeon unified by the dragon. Right. I mean, dragons are uh, a lot like T-Rexes in that they are very big and powerful and have very little ability to manipulate things with fine motor skills. So if they want intricate pieces of artwork, they're going to need to hire, oppress, whatever, um, things with opposable thumbs. And those things with opposable thumbs then have needs that drive say, the presence of, well, yeah, we brought in this carrion crawler to live in our dung pit to make sure that we don't have an infinite supply of dung. Um, and occasionally it gets loose and wanders around parts of the dungeon and the adventurers run into it kind of out of the, the nature, of, uh, nature of their exploration. So there can be different sets of interrelated encounters within that, that same context of the larger uh, dragon dungeon. And that carrion crawler is an extremely good example of a wandering monster. Um, so obviously these are creatures. They aren't going to sit in the same place every day, all day, and do the same things and have the same conversations. That's, that's the territory of video games. Whereas in D&D, it's much easier to have organic monsters that move about. They go about their business throughout the day. They go to, I mean, they go to the bathroom. They go to eat a meal. They go to um, get some entertainment, whatever the entertainment is. They move around, and you can, if you really want to get detailed about it, you can have an entire schedule. You can say the the party shows up at this time, and at XYZ round, this happens, this person goes here, this person goes here. I mean, you can get extremely detailed with it, but it's okay to have monsters just kind of walking around, taking care of their own business, when all of a sudden these adventurers show up. Now, wandering does not mean the same as random. We already talked about combat encounters are slow and play by post. We talked in previous episodes about how to maximize the use of your combat encounters 
I not to have combat all the time, all day, all night. Every adventure is nothing but combat. But this is a particularly important point for a dungeon. It can be an extremely wearing, grinding experience if there's nothing but fighting going on. And the random encounters that were kind of intended to keep people from sitting around and talking too much and, and munching Cheetos and drinking Mountain Dew that you would use at a tabletop are not really appropriate for the play-by-post scenario. So if you're going to do encounters in play-by-post, really work on random, quote-unquote, random encounters really being encountering the wanderings of the denizens in a way that makes sense within their context. So the adventurers encounter them rather than the adventurers just uh, suddenly uh, come upon ogres because I rolled uh, 48 on a 1D100. I will 100% agree with that. I actually, in the campaign I'm writing, the one I mentioned earlier, I have random encounters written into it. But for the purposes of playing it on play-by-post, I've actually written those out completely. Um, just because the players and myself, in terms of play-by-post, are much more interested in moving the story along than we are in just fighting something for the sake of fighting something. So, random encounters... I'm not saying in play-by-post they should be eliminated completely, but they have much more limited use than they do at the actual tabletop. Dwarf Warden gives a uh, very valuable tip here, and one that I've happened to use with party rogues in the past. doesn't necessarily have to be a rogue, but anyone who is kind of scouting-minded can fulfill this type of role. If there's a pattern, it can be learned by careful observation. So someone wants to spend a day or two just watching how the denizens move around and do their thing that gives information that the party can then use those are more of those tips that we talked about hints scattered throughout the uh, the dungeon that enable the party to succeed more readily than if they just walked in the front door and said hey we're here to kick yours get out and you know that lends itself well to um your dungeon might be laid out logically, or it might make sense as an actual constructed thing, but you should also have a multitude of ways to explore it. So for the rogue, if you want your rogue to be able to go around and find the schedules of your enemies, then they should have a new, a number of pathways through the dungeon. And when the party actually shows up to tackle the dungeon, they should be able to take advantage of those multitude of pathways through it. They should be able to say, okay, well, we want to go through this room, then this room, and then we'll backtrack to this other room, and then we'll go forward to this room. So you you don't want to put your dungeon in a straight line. You don't want to say, go to A, go to B, go to C. You want to say, I can go to D, and then I can go to X, and then I can come back to A. Like You want to be able to give them the freedom to explore the dungeon naturally. And that can give another opportunity for those wandering encounters just because you know where those paths are doesn't mean that you're the only one who knows where those paths are that is maybe where they use their uh, their back door as a sally port where they can go and send out a patrol in a way that is less obtrusive than sending them out through the front door which happens to be heavily guarded and trapped Um, the back door is a little further around but it also doesn't necessarily open up your uh, your primary method of defense so I'm realizing this next point probably should have been at the be- more towards the beginning, but you should really give your dungeon a name. Like, 
It seems super obvious, but you should totally name your dungeon. You don't want to just call it generic cave number 12. You want to call it the Winding Passages of Garzul. And that has much more weight and impact with your characters and makes them realize, oh, this is a place that's interesting. It has a history. It's like, why is it called the Winding Passages? Why? Who is Garzul? What are we going to do with this guy? Like, you want to give them some story in the name as well as the actual story of the dungeon. Yeah, well, we talked about those plot hints before. Those are great things to drop. A bard's tale in a tavern, or maybe you you overheard rumors of it while you were passing through some market, or uh, maybe there was a dusty old book that you stumbled across in a, a library somewhere, or or some some abandoned palace with the king's personal stash of like ten books. It's all he had, and one of them happens to talk about Garzul. These are great things to lend richness to the setting where you're not having just a, hey, we're going to go tackle the winding passages of Garzul today. Here it is. Now, obviously, if your game is designed to be a one-shot dungeon crawl, then yeah, hey, we're going to go take on the winding passages of Garzul today. But yeah, I totally agree with your point. Right. And we talked about those plot hooks. Features of interest within each of those rooms, each of those passages can can lend credence to the idea that it's been occupied before, either for a long time or a short period of time. Say, say it's dwarven, dwarven tunnels. Having some unfinished or incomplete work gives you that perception that they were either driven out or, or somehow either encouraged or, or eliminated to, to make it an empty space. On the other hand, if it had been occupied for a long period of time, maybe there's extensive relief images carved into the walls and ornate columns and other signs that it was a very well-established place. Particularly if they're still there, um, I use the example of dwarves, but perhaps it's uh, Drow again or some some other uh, subterranean dweller that's been there for a long time and has no intents of leaving. This is their place, and so it's going to look like they want to live there. And those... We were talking earlier about players being attentive and rewarding them for that. You can also use these minor features. So, like, maybe they were working on carving out a tunnel, and then it very rapidly changes to an uncarved, unfinished uh, tunnel that goes further down. You can use that as a marker of, okay, we're moving out of the more civilized area, and you can use these features to distinguish between uh, places of difficulty. So ultimately what I'm driving at here is you should spread out, you should mix and match the difficulty of your dungeon. It shouldn't be all in one place, but you can use these features to indicate to attentive players that, hey, maybe we're coming up on something that's a little bit more uncivilized. We're coming up on something that might be kind of scary. I mean, if it was able to drive out the dwarves, then maybe we should be a little more cautious. Um so yeah, you can use these minor features not just as a pretty story point, but also for a functional purpose as well. Well, that gets back to the idea of having multiple quest lines within the space of the dungeon. Frequently, these can be encountered by the players learning about the dungeon's existence and having that one plot line in their head as they show up to find out that other things are going on. More sinister forces are afoot here because... It wasn't just that the drow came in and drove the dwarves out, but they were aided by some malevolent 
spirit from beyond and the uh, elemental plane of negative energy that is trying to establish a foothold here. And suddenly the difficulty level went from relatively commonplace humanoid opponents who happen to be fairly good at moving around in the dark and have their own secret language and a whole bunch of stuff to potentially planar devouring construct that's just there to annihilate everything. Sure. And that goes back to the idea of the ecology of a dungeon. And I know we touched briefly on it earlier, but if you're going to have these multiple groups and monsters working together or against one another, then you have to think about how they're going to interact, obviously. So like this, this planar entity that's going to destroy everything, it's not just angry at the drow. It's definitely going to attack the players as well. And maybe there's a section of the dungeon that's basically completely empty and devoid of monsters, because that's the area that creature has taken up residence in. Maybe the drow are trying to stop the players because they don't want them to unleash this thing that they managed to seal up. I say that only to raise the possibility that just because the drow are the dominant adversarial force, you know, on kind of the, the common playing level of the players doesn't mean that the only way that the players can succeed at the dungeon is by exterminating them. They may be able to negotiate uh, potentially a uh, equitable arrangement where the players can get the uh, the thing that they were looking for, say, or or uh, figure out the secrets of this place without necessarily obliterating every life form that existed within the uh, Garzulian construction. And I know I mentioned this earlier, but again, even with dungeons, your players are going to come up with creative and fantastic solutions to things. So, as always, be prepared for players to do what they do best. Break things. Yes. <laughs> so, I have just one more point um, before the last one here. And I, I was doing some research on designing dungeons and seeing what opinions were out there, and... Apparently, I was not aware of this, but apparently there's a philosophy out there that a dungeon should kick your players' asses. And that means they should limp out of the dungeon holding each other up, like feeling like they truly scraped by by the skin of their teeth. And I don't know that I necessarily subscribe to this philosophy for dungeon building, but I will admit that at times it can be necessary to throw something extremely difficult at your players just to see how they handle it. Um, if for no other reason, then you need to figure out what's going to happen when they come up against the ultimate big bad guy at the end of your campaign and see how they're going to handle potentially being defeated. So I can see the value of that philosophy, but I don't think every dungeon should be. I can see the value of it. I think really what the intent is here is that if the dungeon is the scope of the adventure, the players should be forced to utilize almost all, if not all of their resources and all of their creativity to get to the end and feel like they've really succeeded. That if it's simple enough that they can just kind of uh, sleepwalk their way through each set of encounters and there's plenty of places for them to rest in safety and continue carrying on, it creates very much the kind of derisively termed uh, four-encounter day uh, or or even less encounter day out of the the D and D three point five mold where well we know we're not going to be threatened any more than this so we'll put in as much resources as we need just to kind of get through those encounters and then 
then we can fully rest up and we'll be ready to go for the next one. There does have to be some level of resource stretching. And I think that's what the kick your ass mentality is trying to get to is it's not challenging. It's not a dungeon. If you, if, if there's not some substantial challenge that the players have to overcome. So I have one last point on this topic and then I'll let Eric give his uh, closing thoughts, but I cannot stress this enough. When it comes to dungeon building, yeah, there's a lot of ways to go about doing it. And yeah, you can put literally countless hours into balancing, designing, constructing, world building for a dungeon. But at the end of the day, it's supposed to be fun. Um, if a dungeon is not fun, it shouldn't be the way that it is. It needs to be redesigned so that it is ultimately a fun and rewarding experience for your players and for yourself. Um, both the DM and the players should come out of a dungeon feeling like everybody has accomplished something. No, I think that's a spectacular close there. There's really not much that's more exciting than getting to that end point in the dungeon, the treasure room, or the escape, or whatever it is, and being able to look back and say, hey, we did all this in this tiny space, in this confined set of circumstances. That's what the dungeon does best. It's the crucible of encounter. All right. This week's game of the week is Fallen Angel Eberron, being run by Tacit Pressum. Fallen Angel Eberron is a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition game set in the world of Eberron, in case you couldn't tell by the name. The players have come to the city of Sharn seeking their fortune, but everything has a price. In a stroke of luck, the players have applied for a job under Victor St. Domain, who is looking to take his vision into the world. The game itself is a series of urban adventures in Sharn and is based loosely on the adventures in Dragon Magazine 117 to 151. Even if you're familiar with those, Tacit Pressum is quick to mention that you shouldn't let it stop you from applying. I know for sure this is the first Eberron 5th edition game I've seen, but it's always exciting to see that world nonetheless. Eberron is one of the most beloved and detailed worlds available for D&D, and with the game focusing on Sharn, I have little doubt it's going to be an exciting one. Tacit Pressum is looking for 6 players, and applications close the weekend of May 12th, so be sure to apply. So now, we are going to move straight into the free-for-all. The free-for-all segment of the show is back again. The last one was really successful, so we're going to keep it up for the time being. In this segment of the show, we're going to open the floor for questions and answers, so you can ask us anything you want, but we're also going to allow uh, Eric and myself to talk about anything we want. So this is still going to be pretty unstructured, just due to the nature of the segment, but I think it'll work out well, as always. So, even though... It's a relatively new segment. We still have the mandatory question. What's making us happy this week? Eric, would you like to go first? Sure. We got our garden planted. Well, most of it, at least. We got the tomatoes, the cucumbers, the eggplants, and the peppers are in and growing. And it looks like it's going to rain tonight into tomorrow. So we'll uh, definitely uh, be expecting good things out of them. And, and some of our garlic managed to winter over. So we may actually have some uh, homegrown heads there. Looking forward to it. So I have to ask because I'm uncultured swine and do not know anything about gardening. Uh, what does it mean when your garlic winters over? Well, we planted the garlic last season and left some in the ground and it didn't even come up. And now here in springtime, it's starting to peak up out of the ground. And so what we're hoping is that the tiny single cloves that we planted have uh, grown and divided and now we'll have entire heads of garlic sitting underneath that by fall we'll be able to harvest and turn into yummy concoction. So... 
What's making me happy this week is I have a new computer arriving this week. Um, if you've been living under a rock, you may not know, but my current PC has been having some pretty serious troubles, so I will finally be able to upgrade and replace this one coming up this week. So yay, new computer. That's always exciting. So back on the dungeon theme, I'm looking over in text chat, and uh, Ding Momon is positing an entire dungeon that looks to be entirely empty until someone in interacts with something, be it a piece of furniture or a uh, unassuming-looking boulder as they're trying to figure out what is really up with this place and find out that it's entirely populated with mimics of various sizes and hungry levels. Hilarity ensues. Yeah, that could be a, an interesting theme. I'm not sure I would do it for an entire dungeon, but a, a room of mimic family? Yeah, that could be a, a pretty hilarious encounter. Isn't that... Just the entire plot of the video game Prey. Mick the Rogue says yes. Ding Maman says dots. Uh, Chibi Amy laughs uproariously. Okay, so it sounds like the answer is yes, but <laughs> I was just, I, I saw that idea and I was like, wait a second, didn't they already do that? <laughs> but I will admit, I, I agree. I think it's a good idea for like one room, but I don't think I would do an entire dungeon about it. Mick the Rogue points out just because a video game did it doesn't mean that you can't do it better. I cannot count the number of times I've seen advertisements on Mythweavers for we're doing this adventure and yeah, we're basically basing it off of a particular video game, but uh, we're going to take it up a level. I think there was a recent rescue request out there for a Breath of the Wild themed Legend of Zelda game that uh, needed a new GM to run Ryutama, I think was the, uh, the, the name of the system that they were using so uh, if that interests some potential gm listener out there i'm sure that they were uh, they would be glad to have you on board speaking of games how are your games going morda awesome. going- damn it <laughs> i answer to a lot of things including hey you idiot <laughs> so uh, i'd say they're going pretty well right now I've- april is kind of a rough month for my family simply because it's the height of soccer season so there's been kind of a lull going on in most of the games, which fortunately has coincided with other players kind of being occupied with, with their, uh, their own intrigue. But I think probably the one that's more exciting than the rest is Odd Jobs, which is my longest running game. It's now up over a decade and the party split into two groups back in 2009 and they are just now reuniting. And for a little perspective, we now have a second grader where there was no second child when that happened. So it's it's definitely a big milestone for us. Wow. I I have not had a game run that long, but that is incredible. Just the dedication required by both yourself and your players. That blows me away. And it is true. I have two of the original players still in the adventure. So that's out of six. That means four went away at some point, but... One of them went away for three years and came back. So, yes, dedication. Jeez. I thought I was doing good when I looked at my games and I had one that's coming up on two years. <laughs> now, the funny part was that the one of the long-running members had forgotten the name of the dwarf in the other party and needed to be extra prompted. Of course, he had forgotten the name of his own character for other reasons, probably relating to uh, slow posting. But, uh, irregardless, it's an exciting time and yes basil you should post in ravenloft your do up 
<laughs> yeah, that reminds me, I do need to post in all my games. I am a wee bit behind. I was supposed to post this last Wednesday. It is now Saturday, so yeah. And I have one game that's actually trending towards conclusion, if I can just get the two players uh, to get back in the same space, because they split up for what seemed like good reasons, and then one of them ran into a combat encounter. And that's and that's been slow posting hell. Yeah, Mick the Rogue brings up a good point. Not everyone should DM. Like it's not it's not a thing that's for everybody. Just for a variety of reasons. Like it requires a ton of time and requires a lot of dedication. I mean, obviously with Eric, I mean a game for nine, ten plus years, that's incredible. So yeah, that makes sense. Especially if you have like anxiety or something. It's just it's tough. I mean, there are people out there that do it, and I'm not saying they shouldn't. But it's definitely tough for some people, and it's not for everybody. Yep. Organization is called out, having the right level of creativity, and be able to work on the fly, even in play-by-post. We talked about it in previous episodes, talking about the characteristics of a good GM and how to craft a good game. It's it's not something that you can just throw together and expect it to stick. you got to plan your way through it, even if you're mostly going to improvise the little details got to remember what they are so that when you come back around to them five or six years down the line, they're still memorable. Also, workload management. I'm not GMing nearly as many games now as I was ten years ago. So Basil is getting ready to run a Discord game using the Mythweaver server. Uh, Basil, tell us about that. I'm curious because I've seen you guys chatting about it, but I want to know, like, what's the premise? What's the game? What's the system? Jimmy, stop being an ace there. <laughs> No, this is a good thing. So this is this is something I wanted ever since the original, like, we first created the Discord. Like, I wanted people to be able to come in, and if they want to play a game using the Mythweaver's Discord, I want that to be possible. So, uh, Jimmy, shut up. <laughs> so, Basil, I have total faith in you. I 100% believe you can do this. And I want to know about the game. So Basil is now expositing about how he prefers play-by-post, and so he's choosing himself to run a Discord-based game, I suppose by being the skeptic who will be won over by the awesomeness of his own creation or uh, have evidence, at least in his own mind, of why it will never, ever work and everyone should play on Mythweavers as the uh, primary method via play-by-post. Oh, you're using Rises? When are you meaning? I mean... Merlana is staring at me with daggers, so um, I'll just catch up on the chat occasionally, maybe. <laughs> that was awesome. But no, if you're using Rysis, that would be... That's awesome, because I, I thoroughly enjoyed the game we played with that. Uh, even though it was just a one-shot, I still really enjoyed it. Oh, <laughs> so you're playing it during working hours. Well, as long as I can post slowly. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> Uh, Chibi Amy, you said that you have done some Living Greyhawk and Pathfinder Society stuff. Did you run the games, or were you playing in them? Okay, so mostly played. Okay, I was just curious, because I've actually been investigating the possibility of playing, or either playing or running a Adventurer's League 5th Edition game at my local game store, and I, I just don't know how to get into it yet. I, I guess the first step is to actually go there and see if they actually do Adventurer's League, huh? Yeah, they're not scary people. You should just go. <laughs> Maybe I'll try and make that an objective this week coming up. 
So Basil says that his Discord game is going to be fantasy, a bit on the serious side. Uh, Basil is running it, and Sarah Cock and Call Me Fate are going to be the players. That can't possibly go bad. Weren't those the instigators in our general channel improv theater melee? Um, if they were, I wasn't there for that. You were there for the office building. Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. It was during the day, so he had to have been sober. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I, I can imagine that this would go downhill fairly quickly. But yeah. I mean, all the good improv theater logs get put in non sequitur, so everyone can go read the J-War, and everyone can go read the office building, and the <laughs> fact that Rob burned down the office building with his toast making and still hasn't shown up for the safety committee meeting is a sore point. <laughs> Allegedly, Rob says. Well, yeah, we'd be able to know for sure if we had this safety committee meeting, which has been postponed three times due to Rob being in Mexico. (laughs) So Basil also says there's apparently going to be a game thread on Mythweavers that he's going to allow everyone and anyone to post in. So uh, do you have a link to that or does it not exist yet? Pinned. It's pinned. Okay. Um, Well, let me look at it this thing. Alright, I have the link. I will now post it. Oh, I think Basil beat me to it, but here's the link to the actual. Are there lowercase draconians or uppercase draconians? What? I was peeking at the the game table threads and uh, saw the word draconian and it piqued my interest. Okay. Because I fought draconians in D&D and that was exciting. Not necessarily Uh, in a fun way. Alright, I think we're going to wrap up the free-for-all here in just a couple minutes, or maybe another minute or so. So uh, if you have any last-minute questions, feel free to throw them out there. Um, if you have any topics, feel free to throw them out there real quick. We have about a minute, minute and a half. No pressure. Favorite <laughs> breed of dog? Oh, um, retriever of some sort. Probably black labs because they're actually somewhat smart as compared to the browns, which are just rogues and the goldens which are just dumb uh mrs nate will kill me if i say anything other than a cocker spaniel oh our, our i guess my favorite canine right now are the foxes who are resolving the rodent population in our neighborhood that is an adorable animal it looks like lunch for a fox <laughs> <laughs> yeah seriously we've had two partial foxes found in our... No, not partial foxes, partial oh, squirrels. Oh, sorry, partial squirrels found in our uh, front and backyard over the last 24 hours. And based on the noises I just heard outside, there's a third. Alright, and I think with that we are going to move along. So before we wrap up for the evening, I would like to take just a moment to remind everyone that this episode of Weaving Myths is made possible by our Patreon. We have several tiers of rewards, ranging from us taking your topic suggestions more seriously than non-patrons, all the way up to receiving a copy of my latest novel. We also do special bonus content for our patrons, such as Weaving Myths does Tabletop. The first two episodes of that are available on Twitch, and the third episode is coming eventually. Contributions start at as little as $1 per month, so it doesn't take much at all to show your support. The patrons over at Patreon help make this podcast possible, so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you all to check it out at patreon.com slash mythweavers. One last thing I should note, Weaving Myths is, always has been, and will always continue to be free. 
Full episodes are always uploaded to SoundCloud within two days of the episode being recorded, and all normal episodes will always be available for download or streaming free of charge. So thank you everyone so much for joining us today. It's been a blast, and we appreciate all of the comments and questions from the text chat. As always, I'm Nathan, and I've been joined by the magnificent Eric. So long, and thanks for all the games. And special guest Merlana. Thanks for listening, and keep on weaving those myths.